in my capacity at the seminaries where I met your former pastor, Kendrick Neal, where he came into a Doctor of Ministry cohort that I was leading. Uh, we're grateful uh, for you, for this church. It's so strategically located here. And I believe that God has great things for you as you press forward. I know that these are difficult times. I, I, I never knew how difficult it was because when I was a full-time senior pastor uh, and I would move on to the next place the Lord would lead me, I was happy because I was going to some place. And I never really experienced what it was like to be left behind until I became a professor and came and filled in at different churches and served as interim pastors and different things. Uh, so let me just tell you that, that I understand that it's difficult days and it's hard. It's so hard. And uh, I don't know. I just wanted you to know that I have compassion for you. But I also know that we do have a great God who is completely in control. And last time I checked, he was still sitting on the throne and believe that everything's going to be okay. Can you say yes and amen to that? Everything is going to be okay. Well, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, Paul gives the church at Philippi three things that they needed to do. Now, three is a lot. And so I'm just going to ask you today to find one of these three that you need to work on. Is that fair enough? Uh, do you believe that we are to be hearers of the Word and not doers? Or do you believe we're to be doers of the Word also? Do you believe that living faith, that faith with works is alive, but faith without works is dead? Do you want to have a dead, stinky faith, or do you want one that's alive and thriving? So if we want an alive and thriving faith... Uh, and we're not just going to be hearers of the Word. That means that we need to be prepared to leave this place with at least one thing to do. So I'd just like to know right up front how many of you are on board with me. How many of you will try to find at least one thing you can put into practice? Okay, that's 17 of you. What about the rest of you? I feel like a failure already. How about all of us? All of us. We're going to find at least one thing to do. Well, Paul encourages the people in this church to be unified. And then the next thing he encourages them to do, I need to use three words. It's not my fault. It's, it's what he had. He is very complicated, this second one. He wants us to be joyful, prayerful, and peaceful. All three of those things forms one attitude, a non-anxious attitude. And then he also wants us to focus on the right things. Now, if we have any overachievers in the room, I'm happy for you to work on all three of these things. But for all of us, at least, tomorrow and the next day and the next day, to work on at least one. Well, I think a good place to start would be the beginning. So let's start there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, where Paul urges these two women in the church to be unified. I entreat Yuda and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I'll ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I don't know, I, I would kind of, if I lived in the Bible times, would have liked to have been mentioned in the Bible. I mean, that would be something to call home about and say, hey, Mama, look here. But I don't think I would want to be mentioned in this verse, would you? Called out, the only time they're mentioned, called out because they weren't getting along. And Paul said, come on, ladies, come on. You guys got to get unified. But actually, he doesn't address them. He addresses who we know only as his true companion. Now, isn't that strange that Paul calls out these two women that were being disagreeable, and we know their name, 
but the faithful one, the true one, the one that Paul could depend on, was anonymous. He doesn't mention who the person was. Now, scholars have tried to figure it out, and they've pondered, and one will suggest it's this person, and then another one will blow that out of the water. The only thing harder than getting these two women to agree is to get scholars to agree about anything. Uh, Let me just settle it once and for all. It doesn't matter. I believe this is God's holy, inspired, and errant word. It is truth without any mixture of error. And there is no omission in the Bible that needed to be filled in. We don't need to know who it is. Let me tell you who it is. It's you. It's me. It's us. Whenever folks are disagreeing to the point that it's harming the ministry, then whoever is the true companion needs to step up and needs to help. Now, there's a lot about this situation that we do not know. We don't know what they were disagreeing about. We don't know who the person is that Paul is asking them to intervene. However, there are some things we do know. For one thing, we know it was not about a core doctrinal issue. If it was, Paul in his pattern, in his writing, would have straightened that out. If one of these women were wrong about what they believed, Paul would have settled it. I've never known him to be bashful in any of his writings. Have you? He's quite straightforward. Like he's done so many times, he would have stepped up and he would have corrected them. Let me tell you what else we know for sure. These are good women. These are good women with a track record of faithful service. Paul speaks about them as laboring side by side with him for the sake of the gospel. They'd been in the trenches. They had been working hard. They had been serving hard. In fact, I'm reading from the ESV today, and the word labored, that ESV translates labored, uh, can also be translated as contending. It's an athletic term. It's a term used to speak of athletes as they're striving together, as they're contending, teammates, Side by side, in the trenches, trying to win the battle. The linemen, along with the quarterback and the halfback and the fullback, and everyone else on the team, striving to move forward, to move the ball forward towards the ultimate goal. That's the term that's used here, though Paul would not have been thinking of football like I just was. But it's an athletic term that's dripping in sweat. These women had worked hard. They had worked side by side. They had worked for the sake of the gospel. Now they weren't. Instead of contending together for the sake of the gospel, they were now contending together with each other. And Paul asked his true companion to step in. He asked him to step into the middle of all of this. I don't know about you, that's not what I want to do. When I got a couple folks over here disgruntled with one another, I've uh, had some friends that were police officers and they've told me that domestic disputes are one of the fewest calls they want to be taking. They just don't want to go there. You say, well, this is a fight in the church. What do you mean domestic disputes? Aren't we a family? Yet the true companion was called on, step into the middle of this, and look 
Look at what Paul wants them to do to find agreement in the Lord. See, when we're contending together for the sake of the gospel, we have the mind of Christ and we see the needs that are around us. When I was in college, I, uh, I came out to California and went uh, from one church to another preaching youth revivals. Now, I'm old enough. Some of you are my age or older, and you remember when churches used to have revivals. I started pastoring when I was still a teenager, actually, and was preaching when I was 18 and 19 and 20 and 20. Well, here I am, 63, still going. But um, I, was, I was in the San Fernando Valley, actually, not far from here, when the event I'm about to tell you about happened. I had come out one summer, I'd now coming out the second summer. This was the second summer I'd come, and one of my professors had said to me, Jimmy, there's a, there's a scholarship for people who, uh, who want to spend their life in California ministering. He said, uh, I just want you to know I put you in for that. I know you're having to work full time to pay your way through college, and I just thought this might help. And I said, well, Dr. Bishop, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pastor a county seat church here in Texas somewhere. I won't be moving out to California. I'm, I'm sorry. I, would, I appreciate what you're doing, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't with a good conscience accept the money. And then when I came out here, I'd made a pledge that I wouldn't go to sleep at night unless I'd prayed with someone to accept Jesus. Now, I remember making the pledge. I don't remember if I kept it or not. <laughs> My guess is that fatigue set in because folks in California aren't always that receptive to the gospel. You with me? Not always that receptive. But I do know that I spent many a late night at laundromats and bus stops. Because you go to an all-night laundromat, people are sometimes bored enough to talk to a Baptist preacher. <laughs> you go to a bus stop, if they're catching a bus, they got time. Once they get off the bus, they don't have time. But I was uh, in the San Fernando Valley at a bus stop late one night. The bus had left and the people were gone and I still hadn't prayed with anyone to receive Jesus that day. And I just looked out and saw the lights. And all of a sudden, tears began to roll down my cheeks. And it wasn't the lights I was looking at. It was the lostness. This is a place that needs the Lord. And I realized that I wasn't much. And I didn't have much. I'd already given what I had to the Lord, but that night I decided to give what I'd given to the Lord to California. People, when I go back to my people, my country where I came from, in fact, it just happened this last year. I was back on a recruiting trip. Somebody says, I don't know about you Californians, nothing but fruits and flakes and nuts out there. And I said, yes, ma'am, that's why I'm there. And I looked her in the eyes and said, promise me you'll pray for me. Because people need the Lord. People need the Lord. And we don't have a church on every corner.
People need the Lord. And yet for some reason or another, in the church of Jesus Christ, we can lose sight of that. And before long, we're fussing about this or we're fussing about that. See, we think for us to really be successful, I've got to get my way. Because I've got it all figured out. So before long, when we lose sight of what we're here to do, these two ladies that have been striving side by side with the Apostle Paul for the sake of the gospel. I talk about the tear running down my face. What about the Apostle Paul? He didn't just have tears running down his face. He had blood running down his back where they whipped him. He says to his faithful companion, Go and talk to these ladies. Remind them why we're here. A few things I want to say about conflict. Conflict does not necessarily, is not necessarily a sign that somebody has sinned or somebody is wrong. Conflict happens. Sometimes it's healthy, sometimes it's not. In fact, I think conflict helps us make better decisions when it doesn't get personal. Recently, I was tasked by the senior pastor to do a study about how to make our small groups more effective and align them with the mission. So we hired an outside consultant to come in and to attend all of the small groups and to analyze them. He came in blind. We didn't tell him anything. Just go to all these meetings and take notes and write us a report about where you think the deficiencies are, how we can improve and then bring the report to me and the senior pastor, and then we'll move forward from there. Well, when we got the report back, I asked the chairman of the deacons if we could meet. We met, and I wrote up my report based upon his report and my observations, and said to the deacons, I need more input. Tell me what you have seen here. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? We got their material together, and then I brought together a final report ready to send to the senior pastor. But before I did that, I asked the chairman of the deacons and a deacon who actually was in charge of the small group ministries to come together, and we did a Zoom call to look at the recommendations I had. So by now, they were, it was concrete that was a drying, Right? But before it dried, I wanted to know how can we improve this. Well, the deacons that were there, the two deacons that were there, read the report and were very agreeable. They didn't see any holes in it. They didn't see any problems, at least that they, they were being quite deferential to me. Which I appreciate that. I think kindness is good. But see, what I really wanted was a good report. And so I asked this question. If you were to find one weakness with this report, one vulnerable place, one of the recommendations that I'm making that are going to be the hardest to implement, what would it be? I purposely stirred up conflict. Why? Because I don't know everything. I have two kinds of ideas, good ones and bad ones. And it seems to me that when we work together, we can come up with better ideas. And sure enough, they were able to find a vulnerability that when I presented the report to the senior pastor, I said, this report has one problem. This recommendation is going to be very difficult to implement. I don't know what the solution is, but before we roll it out, we need to find the solution. 
Now, that is very different than what's happening in this text because they've gone from having different ideas, critiquing and improving on an idea, to it becoming personal. See, as conflict moves from healthy to unhealthy, one of the first things that happens is it gets personal. The second thing that happens is somebody has to be right and somebody has to be wrong. The third thing that happens is we have to make a decision and the losing side has to leave. Do you see the escalation and conflict there? I'm saying that there's healthy conflict. If all we're doing is having different ideas, then let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. But once it gets personal, we're headed down an unhealthy path. From where I disagree with your idea to I disagree with you. And by the way, you're always wrong. See, what we tend to do is want to get black hats and white hats and put it on people in the midst of the conflict and say somebody's a good guy and somebody's a bad guy. In fact, if we can determine that somebody's a bad guy and we can send them out, then we think the problem goes with them, but it doesn't. There's only one scapegoat in Scripture, and that was Jesus Christ when he took his sin on us. No other scapegoat is helpful. So when it starts to get personal, two things I want to tell you. First, don't make it personal. And if someone else does, don't take it personal. Just because that person makes it personal doesn't mean you have to take it personal. You can stay in control of your emotions. Uh, You can be a non-anxious presence in that moment and just smile and say, Ah, you know, I make my share of mistakes. But you know, we're working together for the cause of Christ here. Let's see if we can't find the middle path. It's amazing what being calm does in the midst of a storm. It's amazing. In fact, the Scripture teaches us that a calm word turns away wrath. When I was young, I used to think how nice it would be to be important. And as I've grown older, my wife has taught me That while it is nice to be important, it is always important to be nice. Especially when we disagree. Look at the number of times we're taught in the Scripture to be kind to one another. To be gentle. In fact, in nurseries all over... uh, Southern California today, little children are learning that they're supposed to be kind to one another. A nursery worker is getting in between them and saying, now if we're going to fight over this toy, I'm going to put it up on the shelf and neither one of you are going to get it. Now you say you're sorry. Any nursery preschool teachers in the room? I mean, aren't we teaching them that Church is a safe place to be. It's a place you're loved. And we help them to learn how to handle their differences and their conflicts. We've been teaching that for years, haven't we? Too bad some of us adults haven't learned it. (laughs) Just learn how to be kind. Sometimes people need help working through their problems. It's not an easy thing to do, but every one of us need to be Paul's trusted companion and step in and help people remember. You know, I told you my story of my calling to California. 
didn't mean to. It's not in my sermon notes. I'm just so close to where it happened. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit overcome. A little bit overcome with the providence of God right now. Well, when we remember why we are doing what we do, it makes the working out of these little problems so easy and so important. You know, the funny thing is, we lose the unity oftentimes as we're debating over strategy to complete the mission, and then the mission no longer becomes important. What becomes important is being right. And yet, the greatest strategy in all of Scripture for reaching people for Jesus Christ is the body's unity. Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer? In John 17, 12 through 23, Jesus prayed this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that we may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and loved them as you have loved me. You see, in Jesus' prayer, he didn't pray that we would figure out the silver bullet, the right technique, the contemporary methodology. He just prayed that we would be one. And it's an impossible prayer that he prayed because he said, may they, may they be one as we are one. He didn't pray that our unity would resemble the Trinity. He prayed that our unity would be like the Trinity. And then he says, then the people are going to believe that you sent me. Not because the sermons got better or the strategies better refined or the people became more contemporary, practical, useful. It was because the people were unified. You see, what's at heart when these two women were disagreeing. At the heart of it was they lost focus of their purpose. And the risk was that the church would lose focus of its purpose. People need the Lord. The Great Commission is not optional. The people around you need Jesus. Who's going to tell them? If we don't tell them, who's going to tell them? We must be as unified in our mission of proclaiming the good news as the Father and the Son are unified in providing the good news. That's the unity we must have. Well, that's one of three things you can decide to work on. We've got two more. The second thing that Paul says in verses 4 through 7 is we need to be joyful, prayerful, and peaceful. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness. 
These two ladies could have used a bit of that, I'm sure. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You want to know what agreeing in the Lord looks like? It's these verses. That's what it's like. When you have the mind of Christ, when you agree in the Lord, you're able to rejoice even during times of great distress. Remember James 1, 2 through 4? We're to count it all joy when we have various trials. Even during times of great distress, we can have joy. Because the joy we have is in the Lord, it is not in our circumstances. I'm speaking to you from the Word of God, individually and corporately. The Spirit in this church continues to be joyful, even though you, you've got some, you got some work ahead of you. And I'm speaking to you individually. Um, we need to have a good tood. We need a good attitude. We need to be joyful. In this book, in Philippians, perhaps another one of your speakers has already pointed out to you that Paul, on 16 occasions, mentioned joy. Half the times he referred to his joy, half the time he referred to their joy. Paul thought that joy was the reasonable response to all circumstances. We are to rejoice. Now, I'm not sure what robbed these women of their joy. I just know that they had a lapse in relationship and they had lost it. And Paul is reminding the entire church, they've got to get their joy back. The joy is in the Lord. You see, whenever it's more important to be right than right with one another, you've got a problem. But there's joy in unity. There's joy when we're working on a common cause. There's no joy when you're contending with one another instead of beside one another. However, so, so here's the, the really unique thing about this principle. Is joy is the result of an attitude in the midst of difficult circumstances. But joy also changes the circumstances. Because if they find their joy again and get back on mission, they'll put their, their differences aside. Don't we do that every day in our families at home? Successful families, thriving marriages are not ones where there are not problems. They are ones where people face their problems and recover quickly from them. Quickly set them aside. Can move past who's right and who's wrong. It's not that there are not times or moments of tension. There is. And anybody says they're not, I'm just going to question their honesty. Or their powers of observation. But when those moments come, we have to repair quickly and move on. Same thing in the church family. We have those bumps. We have those problems. We have those disagreements. And sometimes they even get to the point in my little scale that I gave you a moment ago where somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong. Until a reasonable person walks up and says, Now, brothers, really? We've, we've hunted down this trail before and we know where it ends. Do we really want to go down that path again? How about the three of us go get a cup of coffee 
you're buying. Don't you think I'm buying? Let's go get a cup of coffee and work this out. Hey, you can still be cheap and love Jesus. Am I right? <laughs> Let's work this out for the cause of Christ. See, the point is neither one of them were wrong, but they both were wrong if they aren't going to move on. Fair enough? Fair enough? So bringing the joy back helps with solving the problem. So there's the rejoicing that's a piece of this. The other thing is, there's no joy in disunity, but what also happens is when it starts to happen is that people start worrying. Does anybody in the room have the spiritual gift of worry? Is there any, some of you, yes, I see that hand. Yes. Be anxious for everything. Isn't that what the Bible says? No. Truth is, worrying doesn't work. Forty percent of the things we worry about never happens, one research study found. Thirty percent are in the past. You can't change the past. 10% relate to sickness, either real or imagined, that's out of your control. And if you add all of that up, there's 8% left that we have any control over. 8%. You know, worrying is part of the problem. Because it is impossible to worry and trust in the Lord simultaneously. It is impossible. And uh, I don't know, whenever I get the temptation to worry, I just thank Satan for reminding me that it's time for me to pray. Because that temptation to worry is not coming from the Father. It's coming from the enemy. And I'm appreciative that he reminds me from time to time that I need to be praying. So we're rejoicing and we're praying. You know, anxiety is a problem. Now, there's clinical anxiety and um, we'll need to have a medical doctor talk to you about that. Let me just talk about the kind of anxiety, this garden variety, worrying and anxiety that's a part of every, a part of the human condition. It is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. Eric Selveride, some of you old enough to remember the name of that journalist, Eric Selveride was quoted as saying, The biggest business in America is not steel, automobiles, or television. It is the manufacture, refinement, and distribution of anxiety. Now, if he had only lived long enough to see cable news, now, let me tell you something about cable news it's an industry that peddles anxiety on both sides of the aisle. And I can guarantee you, whatever the pundit is saying, at least 50% of them are wrong. It's actually higher than that. There's actually been studies to show uh, that uh, experts get it right less frequency than common people, just looking at, uh, at conditions. But I can tell you this for sure, whether you're watching the channel to the left or the channel to the right, one of them is going to be wrong because the expert on that channel is being paid to say the opposite of what's on the other channel. And for some reason... We pay for it. For some reason, we sit down for our nightly fix of anxiety as if life doesn't have enough. 
when all we got to do is back up and realize they can't both be right. One of them's got to be wrong. And then we have this great epiphanal moment. By George, they're both wrong. <laughs> they're both wrong. A few years ago, my wife asked me to stop watching cable news. She said to me, well, you're hard to get along with. You're irritable. She says, you watch that same show three times because it just loops. She said, won't you stop? And I said, yes, sweetheart, I will. And you know what? The world is still going to hell in a handbasket without me. (laughs) Things haven't changed. Well, except my disposition. I view cable news. Now, this is just me. I'm not telling you what you need to do. This is just me, okay? Is that fair enough? I view watching that on par with giving in to watching pornography. It's going to take my mind to a place that it shouldn't go. I'm not saying there's a moral equivalence. I'm not saying anything about you. I'm saying for me. That favorite channel I used to watch, if there's something happening in the world, I won't turn it on to see what it says. I don't want to get sucked back into that. There's a reason for that, and it's found in the next thing that Paul teaches us in verses 8 through 9. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Look at that list. What's true? What's honorable? What's just? What's pure? What's lovely? What's commendable? If there's anything excellent and worthy of praise, think on these things. That's where our mind needs to go. That's why I can't watch a movie with an upward rating. I just can't. And if it's PG and they start taking the Lord's name in vain, i got to turn it off. I, there, I just can't let my mind go there because I'm a sinner. And before long, there's going to be a downward spiral. I need to put my mind on things that are pure. Now, an interesting thing is we might say, okay, I can only listen to Christian music, Dan. Uh, I can only, you know, I can't, you know, I've got to do, uh, you know, church services or podcasts. You know, the interesting thing is this passage of Scripture was out of the Stoic philosophers. Uh, Paul is quoting... Stoic philosophers here. He's not trying to talk about don't put your mind in only sacred things. Uh, You know, I think personally, there's only two kinds of music, country and western. Now, that's just me personally. (laughs) A little jazz every now and then maybe. My wife has Phil Wickham uh, radio on our Pandora. We listen to that too. Uh, 
There's nothing wrong with the source of truth not having been published by a Christian publishing house. Nothing wrong with that. And Paul models that for us by quoting the Stoic philosophers. If it's true, if it's good, if it's pure, that's where our mind needs to go. Well, about the same time that my wife uh, asked me to stop watching cable news, I picked up a book written by a medical doctor entitled, Thanks, How Practicing Gratitude Can Make You Happier. I read it, I don't know, it's probably been five or six years ago, maybe a little longer, on a Thanksgiving day. I thought, well, this would be a good book to read for Thanksgiving. So I did. And since that, I've made it an intentional effort to be thankful and speak words of gratefulness. So in the work environment, the office manager walks in. And occasionally I just look at her and say, I want you to know I'm grateful for you and what you do here. Thank you. Thank you. Recently I thanked my wife for dinner and she reminded me that I had cooked it. And I was grateful for that, too. (laughs) It's amazing what happens when you stop rehearsing your problems and start counting your blessings. And speaking those affirmative words to the people in our life. You know, when someone we love does something wrong, we're pretty quick to tell them, aren't we? Let's reverse the trend. And let's speak words of gratitude. Now, I don't know if I'm more pleasant to be around. Miss Susan's right over here. You can ask her after service. And, sweetheart, there are occasions I think it's okay to lie, okay? Just just so you know. Uh, I'm just teasing about that. But in the book, here's what the author wrote, Edmonds, the author. The family, friends, partners, and others who surround them constantly report that people who practice gratitude seem measurably happier and more pleasant to be around. I would self-assess that I'm a less cynical and anxious person. And all I did was apply the teaching of this scripture to my life. Instead of fixating on the problems of the world... I'm not uninformed. I know about what's happening in the world. You can find out without a continuous loop of cable news. But I'm also in touch with the goodness and a deep thankfulness for what God is doing in my life. So Paul gives us three encouragements. At the beginning of the message, I asked you to promise to work on one of these. Seventeen of you said you would, and the others I coerced to at least nod your head. What's your greatest need? Please pick one. And I want to ask you for radical transformation. Everyone in this room We'll apply at least one of these principles this week. It will change things. Please bow your head with me because I want you to pray with me as our worship team comes. What's your greatest need? Is it unity? Let's remember why we're here. Let's remember the mission. Let's remember that people need the Lord. If you're in the midst of the dispute, let's work it out. Let's not make it where somebody's got to be right or somebody's got to be wrong. Let's just get right with one another, okay? 
And I know that sometimes that this may sound simplistic and it may be a bigger deal than what these two ladies were dealing with, you know. If somebody is wrong, then we all know where Matthew 18 is. Let's read it and let's put it into practice. Guard the unity of this church. Faithful companion, you're going to have to step up. Second, stop worrying. Let's push away from the table of the constant diet of anxiety. Let's decide that we'll trade gratitude and thankfulness and kindness for all the problems that are being dumped on us with cable news or whatever application needs to be made for you. Right now, tell the Lord, I'm done. I'm done. What about focus? To keep your mind on the things that are profitable. Focus on the things that are true, that are lovely, that are pure. Stay in the Word. Father, I thank You for my friends at this church. And I thank You, Lord, for their taking the Scripture seriously today and applying it right now. And I know, Lord, that You are faithful and true. And I know that You're going to make a difference in the life of each of my friends that are leaning into You right now. And I ask, Lord, that You may bless these dear people and bless this church.